actually getting taught on their own level. That's a blessing for them to have that ability and appreciate the evens doing that. Luke chapter 8. Soren Kierkegaard, he was a 19th century Danish philosopher, told a story about a town where only ducks lived. Every Sunday, the ducks would waddle out of their houses, they'd waddle down Main Street, and they'd waddle to their church. They'd waddle into the sanctuary and squat in their proper pews. The duck choir would waddle out, and they would uh, sing songs like Victory in Jesus. The duck minister would come up, and he would take out the duck Bible. And he would preach to them things like, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings, you can fly. You are, have been set free. You can mount up and soar like the eagles. No walls can confine you. No fence can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings. And you can fly like birds. All the ducks shouted, Amen! And then they would waddle home. The Bible gives us instructions on how to live a victorious Christian life. I wonder how many times we've heard inspiring messages. We've heard uh, who God is, what He has in store for you. How many times we've heard the Bible verse in John 10.10, 10, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I'm come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. We hear about the promises of God. We hear about the possibilities of God. We hear about the plan that God has for your life. And we all say, Amen! And then waddle back to our defeated lives. Today I'd like to talk for a few moments about the power we have in knowing Him. The power that we can have and the things that we know about Him and they, how they can help us improve our faith in Him. Read with me, if you would, Luke chapter 8. We're starting at verse number 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake, and they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water, and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. And he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. They ceased, and there was a calm. I want to preach today for a few moments on faith in the storm. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the reading of your word. I pray you'd bless it now. Help me to say only those things that be a help, an encouragement, a challenge. And yes, Lord, if needed, a conviction. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. The miracles of Jesus at the end of the book of John, in John chapter 21, verse number 25, uh, the Bible says, and there were also many other things that Jesus did, the which, if they were written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. What the Bible's saying there is that Jesus did a lot of things that were not recounted. He did a lot of things that are not laid down in Scripture for us. In fact, many things. And so whenever Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, when they write down something that happened, it's not just there. Uh, because it happened, because many things happened that aren't there. It is there for the specific purpose to teach us something so that we can take what God has for us and apply it to our lives. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. This book is not like 
any other book that you hold in your hand today. This book is special. There, within its, its covers are 66 books, 1,189 1, chapters. There's 31,179 verses. There's 810,697 words. There are 3,566,480 letters, and every one of them is there for your benefit and for your inspiration and for your profit. The miracles of Christ, then, they're not just magic tricks. They're not there for our entertainment. In fact, there was times that Pharisees would ask Jesus to produce a magic trick or to produce a miracle for their entertainment or for them to be wowed. That's not what Jesus was about. They were both redemptive and revelatory. They saved and they taught. If we study a miracle, even if we were not there to see it, if we look at one like we do today, we'll find within it the power to change us and to teach us things. And so in today's text, I want to observe three different uh, situations here in this passage. We're going to look at the sleeping Jesus, the rebuking Jesus, and the questioning Jesus. Those three that will help us, I believe, pick up on some lessons. Looking first at the rebuking Jesus. Jesus gets up and rebukes the storm. One of my daughters, a number of years ago when she was younger, and my kids always accuse me of using them in illustrations, and so not to embarrass her, I won't give you her name or initials or Molly Yoder. When she was young, six years old, uh, we were out gathering sticks and making a uh, for our fire pit and uh, wanted to start a fire, and we like to do that, still like to do that even today, uh, start a fire and just uh, spend some time around there. And so I had the kids gathering sticks in the yard, and I was putting some stuff together, and it started to just sprinkle light rain like it was going to start. And, of course, this devastated my kids that were out there because if it started to rain, that meant we'd have to go into the house where nothing fun was going to happen. And so they didn't want that. And my daughter looked up at the sky, handful of sticks in her left hand, little finger pointed up, Peace be still, she said. Now I can assure you that the impassioned plea from a six-year-old girl did absolutely nothing for the rain. But when Jesus says, peace be still, it's not in our text, but it's in the parallel text, Mark chapter 4. When Jesus says this, it will make a difference. Because Jesus uh, is in control of the storm. Everything gets calm when Jesus says those words. Now, we, uh, we just need to stop and consider for a moment the day in which the disciples lived. In that day, there was no greater symbol for death, destruction, mayhem, chaos, than the storm, a typhoon or a hurricane. And you could say that that is still true. Now, we have invented the atomic bomb, yet an old-fashioned hurricane is far more powerful than any nuclear warhead we're going to come up with. Uh, there is no greater symbol even today of destruction and chaos than that of a storm. It was Wednesday, August 24th, 2005. A storm begins to form over the Bahamas. As winds reach 39 miles per hour, it becomes a tropical storm and it receives a name, Katrina. On Thursday by 4 p.m., Katrina grows into a Category 1 hurricane with 80-mile-per-hour winds. It hits Florida, and by midnight, over 1 million homes lose power and 11 lives are lost. By Friday, Katrina starts to head into the Gulf of Mexico. It becomes a Category 2 hurricane. Louisiana 
and Mississippi both declare a state of emergency. Saturday, as winds reach 115 miles per hour, Katrina becomes a Category 3 hurricane, and now New Orleans is in its sight. Sunday comes, and Katrina grows into a Category 4 hurricane, only several hours later to become a Category 5, which is the highest rating possible. Uh, winds are at 175 miles an hour. New Orleans is ordered to evac evacuate. Katrina makes landfall on Monday at 6 a.m. Its 140-mile-per-hour winds pummel the coast of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Hundreds in Mississippi are dead, and in New Orleans, 80% of the city is flooded. They have no power, no drinking water. Many are stranded, and you remember the visions and the scenes on television. Bodies are floating in the water. Over 1,800 people die, but even for those who survive, their lives are forever changed because of a storm. But Jesus Christ, I have news today, is in control of the storm. Praise God. He rebukes it with a word, and it is still. In Psalm 29.10, the Bible says, The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. In verse 3 of that same chapter, it says, God of glory thundereth. No matter the power of the storms, they are in His hands. Now, there are also, what we face, storms of life. Forces that are beyond our control. Things that shake our very foundations. We see them, and when they come into our lives, we see in them that we're helpless. We're small. Storms take people away. They take safety away. They take financial security away. The physical storm that we're looking at today, we're going to use as a metaphor for the insecurities of life, the things that come into our lives that are out of our control. And it illustrates how tremendously small we are when it really comes down to it. How insecure and how impotent we are before life. We talked last week about how life will never ever let you think that you're an owner. You're a tenant, you're not an owner. And so, with that in mind, uh, we have to remember that despite it all, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the storm. When he talks in Psalm 29, these are some of the words used in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The psalmist is listening to a storm. And how does he interpret that storm, he says, the God of glory thundereth. See, the Bible is not just saying that God's power is greater than the power of the storm. What the Bible really makes clear is that the power of nature is just derivative of God's power. Nature only has power that it has on loan from God because all power is ultimately from God. That means when it thunders, in actuality, we could say in a sense with the psalmist, the God of glory thundereth. Now, when Jesus says, peace, be still, and it all goes away, what he's saying in that is, I am the Lord of the storm. I laugh in the face of storms. I am that Lord. I am the king that's enthroned over the flood. If you take refuge in me, there's not a force in the world that'll be able to take you out because I am the Lord of the storm. In me... And only in me are you safe. I laugh in the face of that storm. The rebuking Jesus shows us that God's in control 
of the storm. Praise God for that. But we come to another section here, and we see the sleeping Jesus. Now, here's where the confusion sets in for us. I mean, the rebuking Jesus is good news, isn't it? That no matter how bad the storm in our life, no matter what we're facing, no matter the circumstances, God's always in control. That's good news for us to understand. But then, here we see the sleeping Jesus. And there's a the second picture. Not only does that miracle tell us that God's in control over the storm, but the sleeping Jesus shows us that sometimes God seems to take his time about the storms. You ever notice that in your life? Uh, he lets them come. He lets them rage sometimes. He lets the boat start to sink before he does anything. God often, if we're just honest, and there's nobody here but us, so we can be honest, God is often seems asleep when it comes to our problems, when it comes to our troubles, and we're crying out and begging uh, to him. There's another psalm I'd like to point out in Psalm 44, verse 17. And this is, uh, one, of, one of the things I like about the psalms is they're raw. I mean, the psalmist tells God how he feels. And, I mean, he doesn't pull any punches, and, and here's one of them. All this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten thee. He's talking to the Lord. Neither have we dealt falsely in thy covenant. And in verse 23, awake. Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Wherefore hidest thou thou face, and forgettest our affliction and our oppression? Now we can say, boy, that's harsh talk to the Lord, but and sometimes the storms of life come into our lives, and we're being battered, and it feels like we're sinking, and we ask God for help, and like the psalmist, we cry out, God, we're being faithful. Why are you asleep? That's what the psalmist was saying here. The truth is, God will often seem asleep because he lets the storms come. He lets them uh, rage in our life. He will always, sometimes, I shouldn't say always, but most of the time, the storms in our life, they will go on longer than we think they should. Because after all, we're always seeking deliverance while God is seeking development. Never get that confused in your life. Uh, God wants development. We want deliverance. And uh, so they'll let go on longer sometimes. He will not be hurried. The Bible's telling us here, I believe, in the picture of the sleeping Jesus. He already has, we'll see here, he has complete power over the storm. Yet, he doesn't always act. Let's just, again, be honest. God doesn't always act in the storm like we'd like for him to act. Right? Sometimes things are happening, and we think, boy, you asleep, God? What's going on? Are you watching this? This is not fair. Things are happening that's, that's unfair. In fact, that's exactly what we're going through in Acts with what's happening to Paul right now. Life wasn't, isn't fair in Acts 24 and 25. And so it, sometimes it seems like, God, are you even watching? And he may seem asleep. Sometimes when a person becomes a Christian, they kind of get into an illusion. That once you give your life to Christ, things are going to go well in life. They're always going to go fine. Once you give your life to Christ, things will just fall into place. After all, isn't God the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Everything's going to be fine. That's a delusion. The, the Bible nowhere promises us an easy life. When we get saved, we're not getting on a cruise ship. We're getting on a battleship. The Bible's clear about that. It doesn't pull any punches. And so, uh, 
the, the matter of fact place like James, uh, James 1, 2, uh, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. There's a verse in the Bible that illustrates perfectly what Jesus shows us here in this miracle, the rebuking Jesus and the sleeping Jesus. There's a verse that kind of encapsulates this in John 16, 33. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let that verse sink in for just a second. Because, first of all, we see, in the world you will, you shall. Not you might, but you shall. In the world you are going to face opposition, tribulation. Uh, not maybe, not just the people, hey, the people who aren't living right, those who aren't coming to church, you're going to face some opposition. No, 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 you, everyone, you are going to face opposition if you're a child of God. He says, in the world you shall have tribulation, but of good, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Now notice carefully here, he does not pit these two things together. The rebuking Jesus and the sleeping Jesus are not a contradiction to him. See, the way that we see it, if he's overcome the world, we shouldn't have tribulation. And if we have tribulation, he hasn't overcome the world. That's not what Jesus said. Uh, he, he doesn't say, I've overcome the world so you won't have tribulation. Or he does not say, you're not going to have tribulation because I've overcome the world. In our minds, these things are contradictory, but not to him. He has overcome the world, but we're still going to see tribulation. Now, what does this mean then? When he says, I've overcome the world, let's just grasp what he means there. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. I said, he rose from the dead. Okay, that's, that's uh, overcoming the world, if anything is. Amen? So, death no longer has any ability to triumph over those who believe in him. He has overcome the world. Therefore, evil, all the evil we're surrounded with, all the brokenness that we're surrounded with, they're passing things. They're temporary because he has overcome the world. Any day now, he's going to return and put things right because he has overcome the world. So a Christian is somebody that can say with all conviction, the evil, the brokenness of this world, they will not prevail in the long run. They are passing things. My Savior and I will prevail because he has what, class? Overcome the world. Amen. He's overcome the world, so what I'm going through now is temporary. It cannot continue. The sleeping Jesus and the rebuking Jesus are not contradictions. Uh, they, let me just apply it in another way here. First, we have to re recognize two things. First of all, we will see storms. God does let the waves come. He does let the storms rage. God does let our boats look like they're about to sink sometimes. God does let things look pretty bad. We will see storms. I wonder if the pain of our troubles and our trials and things that come into our life that we don't expect, I wonder if a lot of that pain sometimes isn't the surprise of it. You ever felt that way? I'm serving God. I'm a child of God. I'm being faithful. Why is this happening to me? Uh, there's a certain surprise in trouble as, as we're serving God sometimes. Billy had reached school age. And uh, as many moms do, his mother had blasted him with propaganda to try to get him enthusiastic about the idea. And so he was a 
about to start school, she bought him new clothes. She told him about all the friends he'd meet and, and uh, all these things, prepping him for that day he would head off to school. And the big day finally came. Billy eagerly went to school. He was all fired up about it. He did go, and he did make some friends, and he did learn some things, and, and he came back with glowing reports about his first day at school. The next morning, his mother woke him up early to get ready for school, and he said, what for? Why are you waking me up for? She told him it's time to get ready for school. And he said, what? Again? And I wonder if sometimes that isn't the way we feel about trials and troubles. I just went through something. I got to go through it again. Got to do this over and over. Our reaction often is, how could God let this happen to me? I've been faithful. I've been doing what he says. Now, listen, and I don't mean to be mean at all, but if we are surprised at trials in our life as a Christian, we're being a bit naive. Because the Bible nowhere promises anything different. He promises to be with us through those trials. Amen? But nowhere does it promise to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're not going in the fire. It doesn't have that promise anywhere. He says, I'm able to keep you from the fire, but sometimes we have to go through the fire. Thank God he's always with us. God told us, in the world, you shall have tribulation. That's the first thing. Don't be shocked at the storm. Secondly, this is where we struggle. God will not be hurried. They come to him in this storm. They say, Master, Master, we perish. Again, I've told you often, I like to picture the stories in the Bible. So here they rush to Jesus. Somebody says, where's Jesus? He's sleeping. Sleeping? The, The boat's about to sink. And so they run to him. Master, Master, we perish. This is how I picture the scene. I don't know. This is just how I picture it. Jesus, okay, okay. He wakes up. Boats doing this number. Waves are hitting. They're, they're all stressed out and worried. So Jesus wakes up. He sits up. <sighs> Peace be still. That's kind of how I picture the story. I don't know if that's how it goes. But I know in my life, God is never hurried. I can't hurry him. Have you ever been in a hurry and God isn't? That's frustration right there, isn't it? That is, that is, uh, that, that's when we get sometimes a little bit distressed. But God's never hurried. And if you really think about it, who would want to hurry God anyway? Do you know that much about what the storm is about? Do you really know that much about your own heart? Do you know that much about your own life? When it comes down to it, God knows us better. I don't watch much football. I did have, I don't know, that's funny, but I don't watch much football. I did have two Packers tickets one time. They were on the, I left them on the dashboard of my car and somebody smashed the window of my car and put two more in there. So I, but I don't, never went, don't go. Do you know what a Packers fan does when he sees his team play in the Super Bowl, by the way? Turns off the PlayStation. We could go all day about Packers. We won't do that. But I've noticed that something, when I do watch football, that the coaches on the line, they all have headsets. So they're walking up and down, and they're constantly talking into those headsets. I wondered, who are they talking to when they're talking to the headsets? And you know who it is? This is interesting. You know who they're talking to on their headsets? There are other coaches that are sitting way up high on the stands or in the box somewhere up there, and they're telling the coach down there uh, what's going on because, you know, 
this is, and this is interesting because this applies to life, the, the people closest to the action are often the ones with the worst perspective. The, one, the people that uh, are closest to the action often have the poorest understanding of what's going on because they can't see the big picture. And so they're constantly talking to on the mic somebody that's way up there, he sees all that's going on, he's got a much better picture of the action going on on the field there, and they're talking to the coach that's close down. Now, from the top, you can see what you cannot see in the game. Very often, the people closest to the action are the ones with the poorest view. Now, in our life, God has the biggest picture, or the big picture, I should say. He has the big picture of our life. He will not be hurried. And who in their right mind would want to hurry God? He who has the whole picture of our life in hand, past, present, future, he who has our best in mind, why would we want to hurry him? You know what we ought to do? Trust him. Just trust him. And that would help us. If God has created all the universe... It's only logical that often his schedule will seem illogical to us. Have you ever thought about that? It's only logical for us to assume that sometimes God would seem illogical. It's only reasonable for us to assume that sometimes God's going to seem unreasonable. He's way above where we are. Far more wisdom than what we have. The Bible says the foolishness of God is wiser than wisdom of men. Not that there's any foolishness there. It's just using a comparison to make a point. God will not be hurried. Often he'll let the storm come, even though it doesn't seem like it's fair. He'll let that storm rage longer than you think it should. But we've seen in the rebuking Jesus that God is in control of the storm. We see in the sleeping Jesus that sometimes Jesus doesn't deal with storms the way that we like. deals with them in his own time, but I want to close with the questioning Jesus. The questioning Jesus teaches us that we can trust him, and how to trust him in storms. Now, how can you trust Jesus in a storm? Especially when he looks like he's asleep. <laughs> it's hard sometimes. I mean, let's just be honest. It's hard for us in the middle of a really bad trial in our life to trust God when it seems like he's not, he's not as stressed out about our problem as we are. He's asleep on it. After it's, he gives us an answer to this, and I want to look at it in the passage here. After it's all done, after he says, peace be still, and everything just whoosh, gets all silent and still. I don't know how they got there, but the crickets were chirping. Everything's quiet. And then uh, he looks at them, and this is what he says. This is interesting here. I want you to miss this. He asks a question. Where's your faith? Where is your faith? Jesus does not say, why didn't you have any faith? He doesn't claim you don't have any faith. He says, where is your faith? Don't miss this because I think this is there's a gem here. Uh, he's basically saying, get out your faith. It ought to be here. What are you doing? Why aren't you displaying the faith that you have? He did not say you didn't have it. He's insinuating that you have faith, but you're not using it. Where is it? Where is your faith? It should be here now. This tells us a couple of things. First of all, faith is not automatic. Faith is not a, a uh, feeling. It's not an impulse. It doesn't just happen. Like the thermostat that you have on your wall and you set it to, uh, you know, if you're Brother West, 80 degrees for the, for the winter. And, and so it's, uh, it, when, what happens when it gets down 
below 80 degrees, it automatically kicks on, the heat comes on, and the, 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 the house gets warmer until it gets to that point, and then it shuts off again. Uh, that's not what our faith is. It doesn't automatically kick on when we need it. Uh, it's not a, an autom- it, it, you know, somebody put it this way, well, if I have faith, it'll just naturally happen when I need it. No, it won't, not necessarily. What Jesus is saying here is faith is a deliberate action. He's saying, you have faith, where is it? Where is your faith? See, what faith is, is applying what you know about Jesus. But what they were doing here, they were being controlled by a storm. Their emotions, their feelings, their reactions were being controlled by their circumstances. They were being controlled by what they saw. And Jesus essentially, you know me. You know about me. Why don't you just pull out that knowledge and put it to good use? If you look at what they already knew about Jesus in just the chapter previous to this, in chapter 7, he heals a centurion's son from a distance. He raises a widow's son from the dead. That's just yesterday they see this. So Jesus is essentially here, you've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me heal people. You've seen me teach you. You've seen that there's not one thing I've ever said that's failed to come true. You've seen in me, uh, I've told you that I number the hairs on your head and that I love you. You know these things, so trot them out. That's what your faith is. Where are they? Why aren't you applying what you know? Faith is a deliberate action. And by the way, worry ends where faith begins. How does faith begin? By us applying what we know about God. Look, they... They should have. No, it's easy. Look, I, I don't ever want to look at a, the disciples and be critical on them because we do the same thing they do. All right? It's not like I'd be better if I, oh, I would have been on the boat and I would have just trusted Jesus. Probably not. I'd probably been like them, running back and forth, because that's what we do. We still do that today. The Bible says faith is applying what you know about God. Now let me ask you a few questions. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God? Do you believe that He died on Calvary's hill, died on a cross for you? Do you believe that He physically raised from the dead? Do you believe that He is seated on the right hand of God Almighty currently? Do you believe that He'll come someday and judge both the living and the dead? Do you believe Him when He says to you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Now, all of the answers to that should be yes. The Bible's very clear on all those issues there. If you believe those things, you can face anything life throws at you. And then when those troubles come, what you do is you take that belief out and you display it and you put it to good use. And you recognize like David did when he faced the giant. He's facing somebody who's more powerful than he is by far. And he thinks back, and he says, you know, there was a time that I took on a bear and a lion. Now, Goliath's a big boy, but a bear and a lion? And God gave me victory in those areas. And so David's faith grew in God because he took what he knew about him and put them to practice right now. So when Jesus says to the disciples, where is your faith? He's not saying you don't have faith. He's saying, look, you know about me. Pull it out and use it. Why are you doubting? When Jesus was stretched out on the cross of Calvary, the voice of God thundered as never before. God forsook his son for our sake. I don't know what 
Jesus heard, but we know He was made sin for us, and He cried out at, my, at one point, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? God's voice thundered. There, this was a storm unlike any other. Jesus Christ on a cruel cross, His Father turned His back on Him. And a Christian is somebody who gets out what we know in the face of trouble, in the face of a storm. And he says, if Jesus Christ could be faithful to me during his storm, then I can be faithful to him during mine. If you understand that, you get it out. You display it. That's what your faith is. Faith, by the way, is simply believing God. That's all really faith is, just believing God's going to do what he says he's going to do. That's why we put our tithe in the offering plate. When it seems like, man, if I do that, I won't be able to pay this bill. But we believe God when God promises to be faithful. And so uh, that's faith, putting that uh, in and giving it to the Lord. Uh, everything we do for God uh, is based on that faith, believing God. Now, the most encouraging thing about this miracle is that the storm goes away because they go to him. Uh, even though they do it, <laughs> they do it in an almost snarky way. It's not very nice the way they come to Jesus. Master, we perish. And in, in uh, Mark 4.38, parallel passage, they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus, wake up. What are you trying to do, kill us? It's not the best way to approach the Lord, but that's the way they did. Uh, here's the most encouraging thing about it. They go to him badly, you could say. They go to him inadequately. Yet they go to him, and he responds. Okay, I encourage you today, just go to him. Doesn't matter the quality of your faith, if you just go, he will respond. You're not saved by the quality of your faith. You're saved because of what he did for you on the cross of Calvary. And so, Jesus says in John six thirty seven, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You do not have to earn the right to go to him. You couldn't earn it anyway. You just go, and he'll respond. If you're here today, and you, are, uh, you, you don't know for sure whether you're home, and will be in heaven if you die. You can go to him today and get that settled. He'll not cast you out. Uh, if you're here and you're a child of God, and you're going through maybe a storm. By the way, if you're a child of God, you're in one of three places in your life. You've just come out of a storm. You're in the middle of a storm or you're about to go into a storm. Those are the three. You can pick which one you are because all of us really are in the, one of those categories. We're all going to face storms. So what do we do in them? Hopefully, in that process, let your knowledge of Him grow so that when you face an even bigger storm and the question comes, where is your faith? You can take out what you know and apply it. You can take out what you know and display it. That is really what gives you faith in the storm. Believing God in who He is, what He's capable of, who we are, and what we're incapable of, and just trusting Him. No matter if He seems to be asleep, trust Him anyway. He will not be hurried. He will not be late. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know...